Our columnist, Leila Atassi, had a wonderful column yesterday that traded on Mike DeWine's call early in the pandemic for all of us to be in it together and then pointed out how his coronavirus vaccine policy has turned us all against each other as we fight like crazy to get the vaccine. Interesting piece. Read it on Cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinton here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Good morning. It's snowing. Is it ever going to stop? <laughs> <laughs> yes, eventually. We have oh, another story. So cheerful, up. Laura. You're the only person that I know that's excited about seeing snow every morning. I'm, but I'm no longer excited about writing about snow every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another story coming with our snowfall map so that people can see how much to expect. But no more than three inches is what I, I think. So hopefully. Yeah, but three inches. You, gotta, you can't ignore you it. You have to inches. shovel. Do you have yeah, to shovel three inches? Ignore an inch. But I, Rich Exner did a story a couple of years ago, I think, that said, what, what is the level you can ignore till? And it was like one and a half inches. Beyond that, you got to go clear it. So we'll all be clearing later today. Let's begin. What are some ways Ohio has different rules from other states for who can get coronavirus vaccines? Laura Johnston, Pete Cross put this together based on something from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They made it easy. Uh, and it's very interesting how different this is based on where you live. Yeah, it is incredibly different. This breakdown the Kaiser Family Foundation put together shows that many states have adopted some of the guidelines offered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But they've modified those guidelines based on their own demographics, their public health needs and their perceived social benefit. So take grocery store baggers. Some states have given them priority or older adults. The CDC recommends people ages 65 to 74 become eligible during phase 1C, which no one is at yet. But Ohio, like many other states, bumped 65 and up into 1B, which we are vaccinating right now. Some states are on 1B. Some states are on 1A. My mom, who's a nurse, was like, why did they have to do 1A? Like, couldn't they just do 1, 2, 3? Did everybody have to be in phase one? But 24 states have started vaccinating teachers. Four others are doing it only in some of their counties. So if you can imagine how that pits people against in one state, 10 states have begun vaccinating transit workers. 13 states are vaccinating people in some kind of care setting that's not nursing homes, and 35 states are doing the, the folks 65 and over. You know, you say we are vaccinating people 65 and over. I've heard from a good many of them who would beg to differ with you because they can't get a vaccine to save their life. But we got interested in this because my daughter and I have a, a similar uh, lack of uh, antibody. And because she lives in another state, she's going to be getting vaccinated for it. It just threw me because it doesn't seem like it should move you up on the list. But every state is doing this in in weirdly different ways. Has this country ever attacked vaccinations in such a helter-skelter, haphazard fashion before? It, it seems like there is just no order to this. You would expect there'd be national standards, there'd be generally accepted practices, but it's not. Grocery bagger here, teacher there, age 65 here, age 75 there. It makes no sense. You're right. It's, it's very weird that it's by category, but it's, you know, in, in Ohio, we do it by age, except if you work in these three places and then you do it by illness. And the, yeah, it, it's well, it's, you got to think it's, about how this came to be, though. We had very little national response in the first place. If we had had a strong leader who believed in the destruction the coronavirus could cause, I feel like there would have been a lot more top down 
if not orders, at least directives of here's what you should do. But it's been very much le- left to the states from the very beginning with the shutdown orders. You know, we have oh, never had a strong national response on this. Notwithstanding the the difficulty in getting a vaccine, I think this is one thing where Ohio did put some thought into it with the age groups because the evidence is is kind of stunning when you look at the percentage of older people who end up dying from this. It's something like, what is it, 87% of people are 65 and older who die from this? So it's not like, there is some thought behind it. It's just more like, in my opinion, the way it was executed. No, no, actually, I I think what they did to to stop the death rate by getting to older people was, was right and smart and good. It's just, they're not doing it everywhere. And in the beginning, Mike DeWine talked about how he and the governors from the adjoining states were talking all the time. So even if you don't have national leadership, you'd, you'd think they'd say, hey, look, can we come up with some some common goals here instead of everybody just going it alone? It, you know, because then what happens is if people have a house with an address in another state, they look at it and say, oh, I can go there. We've heard stories of people traveling to try and, and get on it. It became such a problem in Florida that they, they started to change the rules. It's just no way to go about a national vaccination program. Well, and it's confusing, right? Like, so the CD lists a whole bunch of high risk medical conditions that would give you priority to get the vaccine, but states are picking which ones they want to follow. <laughs> like some, like some states have COPD, some have 32 states have severe obesity, 31 list down syndrome, 27 cite pregnancy, and 16 include smoking. So like People might think, oh, I heard this, I can go get it. And we all know Ohio doesn't have a really good way of checking which of the ones it is allowing for priority. So it's just very confusing for everyone. Well, and meanwhile, you got the president saying that by the end of July, everybody who wants one will have one. So at some point, you would think we're going to have to transition to, hey, everybody, you can get it. And if we think we have a free for all with people 65 and older, wait till it's the whole population over 15. Oh boy, it's going to be fun. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does the black owner of three McDonald's restaurants in Cleveland say the fast food chain discriminated against him? Chris Ronowski, this is an interesting lawsuit. I don't think it's the first time this allegation has been made against McDonald's, but I, it might be the first time it's been made in Cleveland. Right. So attorneys for Herbert Washington, who just from a complete side note, is a former member of the Oakland A's baseball team, filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Youngstown alleging that he was the victim of longstanding racial discrimination from fast food giant McDonald's. Washington runs 14 restaurants, including three in Cleveland, but he used to run 23 back in 2017 when he he basically says in the lawsuit McDonald's pushed to drive him from its system. And he basically is saying that he, as as a black owner of McDonald's franchises, was basically told that he was relegated to only running businesses in, in the toughest neighborhoods. And his quote is that McDonald's ensured that black franchisees would never achieve the levels of success that white franchisees could expect. Uh, black franchisees must spend more to operate their stores while white franchisees get to realize the full benefit of their labors. McDonald's did fire back saying that that part of the reason that some of his franchises were were taken away were issues stemming from how he ran his business. And they said that there were a lot of complaints about the quality of the restaurants and not meeting their standards, et cetera, et cetera. 
But the 50-page lawsuit, it does, it, you're right, there, there was a similar lawsuit that was brought in October in Chicago by some black operators at McDonald's restaurants there. And Washington alleges that the chain basically steered them all to, all the black owners to inner city stores. And, and he claims that he once tried to open a, a to buy a site in Cleveland, on Cleveland's West Side, which would have given him higher volume in sales, but the corporation refused. And it's worth noting, he pointed out in 1989, the company had 377 black franchisees in the United States. And today there's only 186. But, you know, I mean, there, there's something to be said about that. There, there, businesses do consolidate. So, I mean, people do retire and get out of these businesses and people sell their franchises and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, there may be some explanation for that. But it, it, right now, this is a this will be an interesting lawsuit to follow. It's interesting that their defense is that you're incompetent. I don't know that that's the wisest course to take. I have a feeling this won't go to trial. My bet is this will settle because the statistics are going to be on the plaintiff's side. If you can show that the number of black franchisees is dropping and if you can show that when he started to complain about this, that they started taking away this franchise, it's going to be hard to prove their claim that his stores were bad. I mean, this just, is if if there ever were a, a a an apt comparison to David versus Goliath, it is here. But but you know, I mean, McDonald's is going to throw the full weight of its its corporate power against this. Do you think so? Though, I mean, the optics of that are going to be terrible. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you. How often do you hear somebody come come back, hit back this hard at, at the beginning of a lawsuit? I mean. They laid out what they feel like is a very specific defense of why they made these decisions. So it's I, I was surprised at how hard they came back at these allegations because you yeah, but I, there's a chance they're going to get some serious blowback because of but that. I think I think the problem is, is if they settle this, then it's going to open the door to to issues down the road. I think I think they'll try to fight this until he gives up. You know, and it doesn't seem I mean, it seems like he he's in it for the long haul, too. So, yeah, I think he, I, he, the sense you get from him is I got nothing to lose here. I'm coming after you. Hey, we'll watch. We'll see. And it'll also be interesting to see if this starts well, popping up in other cities. And he runs 14 restaurants still. So it's going to be kind of awkward to continue to run these businesses. And I mean, he still has to work with the company effectively. So it's it's I mean, if they start messing with him there, it'll just add to his. Account, so, OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the state Senate actually take action this week to take the sting out of the corrupt House Bill 6 energy law? Jane Cahoon, we have talked in wonderment for damn near eight months now about the inaction in our state house on the stinkiest law that's ever been passed. And lo and behold, they might have finally gotten <laughs> off their arses and done something. <laughs> yeah, Chris, I hope you were sitting down when you heard this news yesterday. For the first time, there was a floor vote on one of these pieces of legislation aimed at dismantling this tainted law. So the Senate voted unanimously on a bill eliminating this controversial decoupling provision, the one that gives First Energy a guaranteed level of revenue based on 2018, which was a very good year for them. Although First Energy has already agreed to suspend that in this agreement with Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost as a result of a, of a lawsuit. However, under this bill that the Senate passed yesterday, it calls for refunds, you know, going back to 2019 when HB6 
was passed. So it has to go to the House now. And as we know, they've been dithering over this issue. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Well, let's face um, it. They're the people that passed the corrupt law. They have a lot of liability. And we imagine there are going to be a few more indictments in that House before it's over. Yeah. And, you know, the Senate had been during the last session, they had been sort of hanging back, waiting for the House to do something. Well, they didn't do that this time. Interestingly, the minority Democrats in the Senate tried to amend the bill before it passed to, to completely repeal House Bill 6, but the Republicans stamped that out. However, the Senate president, Republican uh, Matt Huffman, told reporters after the session that the Senate will likely vote in the next couple of weeks to repeal another part of House Bill 6, the one that granted the $1 billion plus ratepayer bailout of the nuclear plants. So the the rationale, though, behind that is that Huffman noted that that Energy Harbor, that's the former First Energy subsidiary that, that owns these plants now, has said that the, this bailout might become a liability for them because of some federal <laughs> yeah. regulatory yeah, ruling. <laughs> and, and so he said, I'm not sure how anybody in the Senate would vote no, uh, you know, and look at the ratepayers and tell them they don't have to pay the subsidy to a company that doesn't want the money. So that's their their rationale now for for acting on that part of it. But, you know, we still have like five other bills in the House that would undo all or parts of this law. So it's just it's kind of unclear what's what's going to happen at this point. But we do have one small step here. It's amazing to me. They've been walking around for eight months. Literally, that you could argue that for all intents and purposes, they have a stamp on their forehead. I'm bought and paid for by First Energy. And they've done nothing to remove that stain in the House. And finally, the Senate has moved. This should have been repealed last August. It's, it's, these people are just shameless in their inaction. But at least we have something. We'll have to see what the House does next. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much are taxpayers forking over to keep the publicly owned Hilton Hotel afloat during a deep drop in tourism because of the pandemic? Laura Johnston, this was kind of scandalous last year when there was millions of dollars of our taxes plowed into this thing to keep it afloat. Now it's even worse. Oh, yeah. We're talking about almost double what we were talking about last time. So they want another $14 million. And coupled with the $7.9 million, we're going to look at nearly $22 million. And county councils actually already approved this 2021 subsidy. It's going to cover $10.7 million in debt payments, $3 million in property taxes, and $158,000 for insurance. Hilton says it can't afford the expenses because of low occupancy during the pandemic. But here's the thing. Hilton manages the hotel under contract with the county. It provides the county with occupancy rates to document the need for the money. But the county refuses to share those numbers with the taxpayers. It says the information is proprietary. And the county says, this is not a bailout. This is like paying our mortgage. Yeah, that that is ridiculous that we're paying our mortgage. I mean, I get it. They own the hotel. The hotel apparently is losing money. But they won't explain that. They won't prove it. And And I don't think anybody really buys it anymore when the county says, trust us. I mean, they got eight inmates dead because we trusted them. There's a there's a gigantic overrun in their IT computer system. It's like twice the cost now because we trusted them. So now they say, we're not going to show you the occupancy rate. Trust us. I don't think anybody does. But but to say it's like paying our mortgage, it's just ridiculous. It's not paying your mortgage. We own the hotel. You don't want it to go under, but it's not a mortgage payment. You contracted with somebody without planning 
for times like this. And now it's soaking the county budget for money that could be used to help people during the pandemic. I think it was fascinating when Lee Weingart, who's already announced he's running for county executive 22 months out, noted how much more money has gone to this hotel. And that was before this than to the food bank. And he had a great line. So I guess if you're hungry because of the pandemic, head down to the Hilton, which was uh, was a winner. I think we're going to. I like I get that criticism a little bit. And, and, you know, nobody is is more like, hey, we really do need to be helping the people eat and whatever. But. What would happen if that building stood empty? I, I, I don't know. No, what, no, no, no. What, I don't know what are the other options. No, no, no. They, look, they've got to pay the debt payments. If they don't pay their loan, and that's the bulk of this money, then their credit rating falls apart and they can't borrow money at a good rate. So mm-hmm. they, it's not about letting it sit empty. It's about, look, this is about the planning, right? This is when you started this, you built your whole financing plan on good times without considering what you would do if there were bad times. If you were really good at planning, you'd have put some money aside and said, look, we need to have a, what do they call it, a sinking fund, something to pay the bills if we have a catastrophe that costs us the money. Let me introduce you to my old friend, the Ohio unemployment system. (laughs) (laughs) No, never plan for rainy days. I mean, we did plan for rainy days and John Kasich took that all away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. I, I love the the what we're about to talk about now because it's fascinating. Why does Lordstown Motors need a change in the Ohio law to sell its electric pickup trucks directly rather than through dealerships? Jane Cahoon, I don't understand why I if I make something, I can't sell it any way I want to. But in Ohio, you can't. This is correct. We have these dealership rules in the law that that prevent Lordstown Motors from selling its electric pickup trucks directly to its customers. And so we have two lawmakers from the Mahoning Valley trying to help them bypass those rules. You know, the company says uh, selling direct to customers is going to allow them to be more efficient as they begin this large scale production. And they, they have a business model that, that aims to sell like fleets of their trucks, you know, not to individuals, but as fleets to commercial customers, including governments and, and large companies. But the, as I said, these two lawmakers are trying to, to help them out here. But this, this carve out that they want to create is going to set up a fight with the Ohio Auto Dealers Association. And th- this happened back in 2014. When they they gave a carve out to Tesla to operate three stores in Ohio, but they specified at the time that that carve out didn't apply to anyone else. You know, I guess the other thing that Lordstown Motors wants to do is to train the consumer or the customer service people to fix these things. Like if you sell it, you know, as a fleet, they would train the people at that company to to fix them. Anyway, the thing is, this law might or this carve out might not pass because um, Matt Huffman, the Senate president, told reporters yesterday that he had a great concern that if these vehicles are sold directly to buyers, that owners would have trouble finding a repair shop for them. I, I don't even get how this is constitutional. In what other area of commerce do we have laws telling you how you sell your product? I, th- th- mm-hmm. This one, I just don't understand it. They're making trucks. They want to sell them 
and the state is telling them you have to do it this way or you can't do it. Uh-huh. I wonder if this law has ever been challenged. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if there's ever been a constitutional challenge based on this. But the the dealers do have like a fairness argument. They said, you know, other manufacturers with a major presence in Ohio, like Ford and Honda and Chrysler, they're all pursuing electric vehicles and they're working within this system. And they note that, you know, Lordstown Motors has already gotten state tax credits and now they're seeking this exemption. So they just don't think it's fair. I know, but think about it. I mean, if if Whirlpool wanted to sell you a washing machine directly, they could. If LG wanted to sell you something that they make, they could. I just don't get what it is special about a vehicle where the state says, no, 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 you can't do that directly. You got to have a middleman that actually gets a big chunk of cash for doing it and raises the price on all of us. And if they say it's about jobs, you know, I just, I go back, well, you know, that's what they said about HB6. And it turned out HB6 was about $60 million in bribes. I wonder what's really going on in the background Mm. here that has them protecting this archaic system that will hurt this business. That's a startup that was such good news for the Mahoning Valley. But it's, it's amazing to hear traditional automakers and auto dealers complain about favoritism through tax credits and stuff as if the auto industry has not been bailed out time after time after time again and you know and continues to struggle sometimes you know i i don't know i mean it just this just feels like a battle of of powerful lobbying forces as opposed to you know a, a question of constitutionality i mean it it's you know they're they're worried that this gives lordstown an advantage over them but part of what the free market is supposed to do is like your products are supposed to be what makes you competitive. Right. And, and if right. you're if 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 your issue is that Lordstown is creating something you can't compete with, then why isn't your company creating something that can compete with it? And I think most are. I think, you know, Hyundai is 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 poised to become like one of the big leaders in in electric cars, I think, in the coming years because of their investment in it. And and frankly, traditional car dealer or car makers have had to been they had to be dragged over the line to finally say it and commit to electric vehicles. It took time. And that's because of the forces of the oil industry. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, well, it, it, it's, it's complicated, but at the same time, it's, we've seen this green movement be hobbled over and over again. And, and it's by forces that are bigger than it. Well, I don't know how though you can make an exception for Tesla and then not, I, the whole thing yeah. seems stinky. It'll be interesting to look at the lobbying that's going to be well, involved. Right. In this and, bill. And that's the thing. This is the Ohio legislature bought and paid for. So you can't trust that they're doing this for the right reasons because they haven't been, as we now know, with millions of dollars. You're listening to this week in the CLE. After serial killer Anthony Sowell died last week, we caught up with survivor Vanessa Gay, who had had some time to think about what this meant to her. Chris Ranowski, what did she have to say? It's a difficult thing to for her, I think, still to talk about what happened. Reporter Olivia Mitchell caught up with her and and sort of talked to her about what this what his death meant to her. And 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 she is if if people don't remember, she was never really given a, a sense of justice with his case because because her her incident with him which she survived obviously uh it was never indicted it was never part of the larger group of of charges that that Sowell faced when he went to court so she she kind of has this open-ended sense that that she personally did not get justice that that he died 
on death. You know, he didn't have the state take his life away from him. He died of a, of an illness that is still undisclosed. And I think she, I think she struggles a great deal with, with the day-to-day living with the trauma, but you know, it, it sounds like she is in a position where she is, is getting help and, and, and has people around her that help her sort of deal with this, but it's, it's difficult. You know, she was, she was led into a, a house of, of horrors. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. And, and, and she came out the other side, a survivor of this, which is, which, you know, I mean, there were a lot of women who did not, I mean, he killed at least 11 women that we know about, and he probably victimized more people than we know. I mean, we, we typically point to the survivors we know about. We, you know, there's three that are documented, but there is almost a certainty that he victimized more people. And so I think she's trying to sort of live her life in, in, in helping people who were in, in her situation at that time, struggling with drugs and, and, and being, you know, vulnerable to the degree that somebody like Anthony Sowell could exploit that and, and, and abuse her in that way. And, and so, you know, she's, you know, what was fascinating is that she really pointed out something that we've written about extensively, which is the racial disparity and the response to how drug abuse is dealt with now compared to how it was, you know, back in the eighties and nineties. And, the early part of the two thousands when we treated it as a, as a matter of law enforcement. And, and, and she, she feels like she has a mission to sort of help correct that disparity that still does kind of exist. And so, you know, it's, I, she's, you know, she's trying to live with a heavy amount of trauma that never goes away. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much money did the parent company of Cedar point lose because of the coronavirus in 2020? And what are the prospects for 2021? Laura Johnston, we don't have a lot of time. What do we know? There was not enough people that went to the parks last year to really make this profit. They're used to attendance dropped 90% and three parks never opened. They had an operating loss of more than a half a billion dollars, but they are optimistic this year. Their attendance obviously increased as the year went on and they think that they're planning to open May 14th for Cedar Point and they'll have their 150th anniversary year, which was supposed to be last year and got delayed. So they say there's a pent up demand for outdoor close to home entertainment and no, no COVID cases were linked to them last year. So they're in a good spot. How can they say no COVID cases? <laughs> no, officially. Yeah. I mean, a half billion dollars, <laughs> it's a significant sum of money. Uh, we're talking first energy area there. So you were one of the people that went there last year. What what did you see? Was it crowded? It I went on the last Thursday they were open because they switched to only weekends. So I think a lot of people were trying to get in that that day, but there were it was like no one was on the regular rides. Like my kids weren't ready to ride big roller coasters. So if they wanted to ride the swings or, you know, those spinny rides like the scrambler, they just ran off and ran back on again, which you don't see at Cedar Point happening very much. And so there were some some like lines for roller coasters, but it was because everybody was so spread out in line and they stopped the cars every third time and wiped them all down from front to back with these rags and cleaners. So I, I felt pretty safe. Everybody spread out. Everybody was wearing a mask. So I would do it again. And you didn't get the coronavirus. So there you I go. have not gotten the coronavirus. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. That does it. We got one more day. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. 